This week, a friend of mine reminded me of this famous essay by C.S. Lewis called The Inner Ring. In the essay, Lewis describes this inner ring as any kind of ring of associates or friends that there's a special sense of belonging and power, of influence makers, we might say thought leaders. And Lewis writes in this famous essay, not using gender-neutral language, he writes, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the ring inside this local ring to belong, and the terror of being left outside. Of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man, making a woman who is not yet very bad, do very bad things. The desire to belong, to belong in the right circles, the inner ring is powerful. It seduces us. We saw the truth of Lewis's point play out this week in the FBI operation called Operation Varsity Blues, the arrest of several dozen parents who had bribed and defrauded others in order to secure a place for their children at the right kind of schools, the right schools, who were willing to go to great lengths, to criminal lengths, in order to secure for themselves, for their children, a place in the inner ring motivated by the terror of being left outside. Our gospel reading this morning involves this remarkable interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. Often in the gospels, the stories of Jesus' life, the Pharisees, they're at odds with Jesus, right? They're opposed to his work. They see themselves in competition with him. They're jealous of the adoration he receives. But here they come with this simple warning. Get away from here. Herod is out to get you. He wants to kill you. It's no stretch to say that this threat was credible. This Herod is the son of the ruler who reigned at Jesus' birth and ordered the killing of every male child under the age of two in the town of Bethlehem, hoping to snuff out Jesus' life at its earliest stages. This Herod, who ruled in the region of Galilee, where Jesus finds himself on his way to Jerusalem, had himself arrested and eventually beheaded John the Baptist. Even as elsewhere, Luke writes of Herod's fascination with Jesus. He wants to meet him and have him do a sign. A threat from this tyrant was one that represented real danger, coming from the seed of power from the very heart of the inner ring in first century Palestine. The ultimate experience of estrangement, of exclusion, is of course death. You're definitely outside when you're dead. It's the ultimate form of FOMO. You're estranged from life, from possibility. In the classic Western film, Unforgiven, one killer reflects to another on the act of killing. He says, it's a heck of a thing, killing a man. You take away all he's got and all he's ever going to have. It's the ultimate form of being excluded, of left outside. This reality, the reality of death and all that it means for us makes Jesus' response in our reading so very remarkable. There's not a hint of fear there's no move toward self-preservation in his response. His response is almost 
strikes me as brash or foolhardy. Go tell that fox. It's not exactly how to win friends and influence people. Rather than heed the warning to go to get away, Jesus' response is, I'm not going anywhere, but you go, and I've got a message for him. To call Herod a fox is appropriate. To title him a fox is appropriate. The name suggests a a destructive predator, one who destroys life, who's greedy and rapacious, willing to consume others. It seems appropriate for a petty tyrant. What might be lost on us, however, was the first century connotation that some scholars have brought out, that this term also carried with it a sense of irrelevance. Foxes were a nuisance, to be sure, but were seen to lack the status, the strength, the courage of other more serious predators. There's something dismissive to Jesus' titling of Herod as fox here, dismissive of the threat that comes from what would have been considered the inner ring. When we're confronted with a serious, credible threat, or even something that seems like it, the normal animal, the normal human response is fight or flight, right? Put up your dukes, get ready to defend yourself, or get away as fast as you can. With either response, the threat has our attention. It's the defining reality. We're responding to it, fight or flight. But Jesus' response here is neither. He's not distracted. He's not defensive. He is not dissuaded. Even in the face of death, this ultimate threat, this ultimate exclusion, Jesus is unflustered. The terror of it seems to have no effect his courage and poise don't fail. What makes it possible to live this way? What makes it possible to live with that kind of courage? I long to live that kind of way. It seems to me that what Jesus appears to have and what I long to have is clarity. His clarity about his place, his purpose, his belonging, we might say. To use the language of Lewis, he seems secure in his knowledge of his place in the ultimate inner ring. And that allows him to be unaffected, remarkably so, in the face of threat and difficulty. It's that sense of place, of belonging, that it seems funds his courage, his poise. I was reading this week about basketball star, Duke basketball star, Zion Williamson. He's this remarkable athlete. And I was reading that when he was five years old, Williamson identified, I want to be a basketball star. I want to play basketball. And when he was nine, he started getting up at 5 a.m. to practice, to train, to do his dribbling, waking up his stepfather and mother. That's remarkable single-mindedness. That's remarkable sense of purpose. In Luke chapter 2, the evangelist Luke tells the story of Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to the temple. And they eventually, when the answers and his understanding, and his response to his mother, to the one to whom we would say, says in the Gospel of Luke, I am right where I belong, most deeply, most truly. From this early age, Jesus knows exactly with whom. 
It's there and purpose that motivates Jesus up to and through the cross. It's there when he sets his face in Luke 9, verse 15. God is his shield in the language of our Old Testament reading. Whom, of whom should he be afraid? Whom should he fear in the language of our song? It's this sense of belonging with God, I would suggest to you, that causes him here not to miss a beat in the face of this threat. That fox can say whatever he likes, but you tell him, behold, today I cast out demons, tomorrow I perform cures, and the third day I finish my course. My work is going to be completed. Nothing will dissuade me. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. It's remarkable. The consistency, the courage, the freedom of living for an audience of one. We are at the beginning of the second week of Lent. It's the season of fasting, of silence and solitude, of concentrated prayer and worship. Disciplines that strip away distractions and those things that cultivate divided loyalties. Practices that foster our identity, our intimacy with God, that invite and empower us to wait upon the Lord, that draw us to the Father. Of course, if you're anything like me, this season has already prompted a sense of frustration and failure. Already falling short of practices and disciplines you've identified. Stymied, even made cranky by the disciplines you are doing. You're like, what am I doing anyway? What was I thinking 10 days ago when I said I would do this? In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the season of Lent is associated with sadness. It's the season of bright sadness, they say. Sadness at the state of our souls, at the weakness of our wills. A sad recognition of how sin-sick we are, how we cannot find our way to wholeness and life. In our petty frustrations and failures, there's a recognition that we cannot earn, we cannot enter in to the life that we long after. I can't work my way into the inner ring. Lent makes losers of us all. And it can expose to us who so often can view ourselves as winners to our true weakness and folly. There's a sadness to that, but there's a brightness, a goodness to it too. Jesus says on the third day, I finish my course, I complete my work. The work that begins in casting out demons, in performing cures, healings, is completed on this third day. In the Gospels, Jesus' works of deliverance and miraculous healing are best understood not as displays of raw power or, or wonder-making signs, as parlor tricks, but ultimately, most fundamentally, as works of restoration. Restoring the broken and marred image of God in people. Restoring them to relationship and community. To a place of belonging among the people of God. With God. Drawing them into the inner ring. This work of restoration finds its culmination that estranges us from God. And exposes the darkness, the injustice of this world. And there he breaks the hold of death and evil. He proclaims 
It is finished and rises on the third day. We can conceive of this work as Jesus expanding the inner ring. He makes a way for broken and marred human beings, for losers and failures in life to be included in the intimacy, the identity with God that he enjoys. He makes a way that you and I might share in his life. That we now would share in the same relationship, the same sense of purpose. He makes a way for us in the language of our New Testament reading to be citizens of heaven. That we who are earthly can be something more, the more for which we were made and for which we long. This work is completed, finished. Nothing you do or don't do this Lent or at any point in life is more important or definitive than what Jesus has accomplished upon the cross. As you think about the good work to which you are called, the, the practice of disciplines this Lenten season, the work of bearing witness to Jesus, of part the, whatever particular vocation has been laid before you, the most important work has been done. And so we engage in all these various ways in the knowledge that what Jesus proclaimed is true, it is finished. The work completed. Your place of belonging with God is secure. So that work, that good, that difficult work that is laid before us can be taken up without fear, in freedom, with lightness, with joy. In Christ, you belong. You have a place in the ultimate inner ring. In the verses following Jesus' response to this threat, his remarkable response, he laments. He laments over Jerusalem, over the people of Israel. And this lament reveals something of Jesus' heart, the heart behind this completed work. Jesus' heart for you. In verse 34, he says, How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Jesus here uses the language of a parent extending herself, extending her life over her children, expressing this desire to draw the people of God under his care and protection. This is actually an image that's used in the Old Testament of Yahweh, of God's actions with Israel. And the same word here that Jesus used to speak of his own longing is the same word that is used of Herod's desire to see him killed. It speaks of this fixed desire or intention. It is the longing of Jesus' heart. It is the orienting purpose to gather people to himself. In expressing the lament this way, Jesus associates himself with God remarkably. And he takes up this hope that Israel had as people harassed and dispersed that they would be brought together one day in God's presence, that they would be brought home. I remember a number of years ago speaking with a friend of mine who had over the decades emigrated two times, first from South Africa to Scotland, and then after an extended period there to Canada. 
And after a number of years in Canada, he journeyed back to Scotland, just visiting friends and family. And he spoke of being radically alienated there, realizing I am not at home here. This is not my Your home is home. This is the work that Jesus longs to complete. This is the heart that animates his journey to Jerusalem and through to the cross. This is the work he will, that you would be drawn near, gathered together, that you would find your true home and belonging in him, that you would not be left outside. That terror need not happen. If I'm honest with you, there's something almost infuriating about this truth. There's something deeply disorienting about it, troubling, threatening, at one level, perhaps even angering. I want to earn my place. There's a comfort, there's a safety in striving to get in. There's a comfort, a safety to meritocracy. I know where I stand, I remain in control. It keeps me at the center in a way. There's something off-putting about receiving what Christ has done for us. If I'm honest, there's something of Herod. There's something of the people of Jerusalem in me. Something that would prefer to reject the gift. I'd sooner cling to the illusion of my self-made accomplishments. More than just rejection, both the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Herod are described in terms of outright hostility toward Jesus. It's Herod's intention to kill him. Those in Jerusalem are the ones who kill the prophets and stone the messengers of God, the God whose heart it is to gather them together. In the language of Paul, they're the enemies of the cross of Christ in some way. There's something of that in me. And speaking of the prophets, Jesus links himself with them, those who suffered and died at the hands of those they came to serve, who experienced hostility, hostility toward themselves, toward God, even in generosity. It's a curious thing. But to accept the gift, to accept the place of belonging that Christ offers us, is to acknowledge in a deep way I can't get there myself. It's to acknowledge in a deep way my own folly, my own weakness. I'd rather make it on my own sometimes. There's something profoundly humiliating and humbling to receiving this gift, an acknowledgement that I'm accountable to someone other than myself, to a standard beyond what I might choose. There's an acceptance of help from beyond myself that's radically decentering of my life. If Jesus' work is most important, then I am no longer the center in the way I might prefer and once believed. I'm not self-made. I cannot boast. The gift of this point of Lent for us may be the sense of failure, the sense of frustration the recognition that we cannot stand on our own. 
Because if I can see that my house is forsaken in the language of Jesus, that my life in some very real way is desolate and empty if it is of my own making, if I can, in in spite of myself, in spite of so much in my life that affirms my goodness and centrality, recognize myself as helpless, then this is such good news. Because the work, the work of entry in, entry into the life of God, the love of God, enter into the triune inner ring is already done. It is completed by Jesus. And the benefits of that work are available to me as I recognize my lot, my helplessness, and receive that gracious gift. John Stott is this great British preacher and pastor of the 20th century. In writing about his upbringing, his good, proper British upbringing, he writes of how there was a great deal of religious activity. There was, by any estimation, a good life full of very many good works. But he writes of his moment as, uh, this moment as a late teenager and his conversion, he would say, to Christianity. And he says his conversion only came when the question was pressed upon him, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with the gift that he offers? And in that question, he recognized a choice, a choice to reject him or to receive and follow, to receive the gift, to acknowledge his lack, his need, that all the good, that all the religiosity up to that point was not enough. What shall we do with Jesus? At the close of our reading, Jesus declares that the people of Jerusalem will not see him until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a phrase the disciples of Jesus will sing and shout upon his entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We'll mark that toward the end of Lent, a week before Easter. And the phrase actually comes from Psalm 118, verse 26. And this psalm was used in Israel's worship in their Passover meal. It was used in worship to be sung and read as they marked God's saving grace, his saving action that he had come to deliver, to bring them in, gathering them together. In this phrase, as Jesus used it, as he invites the people of God, the people of Israel to use it, there is this recognition of need. There's a recognition of the predicament we are in that we cannot save ourselves. And there's a recognition of Jesus as the one who comes to deliver, who reveals fully and finally God's deep and fixed desire for you to gather you together to himself. His desire to care, to save, to nurture and protect. And through him, The work is accomplished. We find our belonging in and with God through him. In him we are delivered. So yes, Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And blessed are those, are the ones who see they're helpless, that they cannot stand on their own, that they cannot enter in, and who receive and follow him. Let's pray.
gracious and almighty God, we come to you this morning as people with accomplishments. We come perhaps as people of means. We come perhaps as people who who the world regards, who we ourselves would regard as winners. And the gift of this time in your presence, the gift of this season of land is that it strips us of our illusions, oh God. It opens our eyes to the reality that we are empty. It exposes us to our need. And would you, in your mercy, give us eyes to see that truth? But would you too this day, O God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in your mercy, in your kindness, give us a fresh vision of Jesus. Give us a fresh vision of the gift we have in him. The place with you, the gathering together of ourselves in him with you, O Lord. that we might receive all that you would have for us this day. And that we might go forth with the same courage, the same sense of purpose, the same freedom that Jesus exhibits in his life. There are some of us here this morning, O Lord, who need a fresh reminder of who we are, of how secure and safe we are in you. Would you grant us that by your Holy Spirit now in this moment? Come Holy Spirit. Come Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.